Saul bowed before Almighty Yahweh. And before I pray, I'd like to ask everybody to remember Brother Paul Henson. He's in the hospital right now with an infection and uh, should be out here in a few days. And uh, especially, though, uh, remember us, uh, Lucas, Cecil, and his family, his father passed. And so uh, certainly remember him in prayer and the whole family as they mourn the loss of a very special man. Let's bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father Yahweh, we come before you and we ask first that you would bless this day and bless this assembly and those within it. We also pray a special prayer, as we just mentioned, with our brother Paul and that you would bring him to health and especially, though, that you would be with the Cecil family, with Lucas and, and uh, the entire family, that you would strengthen them and help them mourn the grief of of Ted, and we pray that you would help them through this. Father, we know that there is coming a great day, though, with your son when he returns, and we have hope to see Ted again at this time and rejoice in that moment. Father, we thank you for the other blessings that you have given to each one of us. We pray that we would always strive to honor you, that we would strive to devote our life to you, that we would live our days for you, that we would make you our focus. And Father, we thank you, and we give you all praise. We thank you for your son, Yashwin, the sacrifice that he gave us through his own life. And we ask all this in Yashwin's beloved name. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is a, uh, certainly a blessing to have everybody here today. I'd like to uh, extend a welcome to those online. Well, today I want to continue with the second part of my message. I gave this two weeks ago, and the message is entitled, Paul, the Most Misunderstood Man in the Bible. You know, as I mentioned in part one, no person in the Bible is more misunderstood than this, than this person. I mean, Paul is just horribly misunderstood. We see many, many examples. In my last message, we spoke about an example with a man named Martian. This man rejected the Old Testament and almost all of the New Testament. He only accepted 10 of Paul's epistles and part of Luke. He also rejected Yahweh. He believed and viewed him as nothing more than a jealous and malicious mighty one of the Old Testament. Now, because of these heretical beliefs, the early church eventually deemed Martian a heretic, and rightfully so. Now, while Martian is an extreme example of where people can go with Paul's epistles, his letters. He's not alone in his misuse of Paul's writings. You know, the sad reality is almost every minister in nominal worship has made this same mistake on some level. They have gone so far as to remove crucial aspects of Yahweh's word, and they use Paul as the reason for that. I know I reviewed of 2 Peter 3.15 in our first message, first part. I want to review it again, though. It's such a critical passage when speaking about Paul and, and uh, that he is hard to understand, and, and uh, we need to be careful with that. So 2 Peter 3.15-16 says, An account that the long-suffering of our master is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul. So notice he considers Paul a brother in the faith. So there was a connection between Peter and Paul. 
It says, also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles. And again, that refers to scripture, epistles. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. Notice that other scriptures, Paul's letters, is incorporated within that. Unto, he says, their own destruction. So in my last message, we reviewed three points. Number one, Peter confirms here that Paul is at times hard to understand. Well, I think we would all agree with that. He is hard to understand at times. Number two, for this reason, many twist Paul's writings, it says, to their own destruction. And we certainly see that in this day and age. So many are twisting Paul's message, changing what the Bible says based on his view. And really, it's not his view. It's their misunderstanding of what he's communicating. And number three, Peter confirms here that Paul's epistles are to be considered scripture or canonical. It's a very important point because some people have a, have a chip on their shoulder with Paul, and they refuse to acknowledge this man. Or for, for a few moments, I want to focus on Peter's first point here. Even during Paul's own lifetime, was he confusing and could be hard to understand? You know, if any of the apostles could have been considered an academic, it would have been Paul. Paul was unique in a lot of ways. Most of the apostles were simple men, fishermen, other occupations. But Paul, he was a learned man. He was an academic. As a child, he was trained and educated by one of the leading rabbis of his day. And because of this, Paul developed a high aptitude for the Bible and also Judaism, what he believed and what his Jewish faith stated. Paul was able to delve into deeper theological issues, more than the others, I believe, because of this training, because of this, this understanding, this depth in his knowledge. And for that reason, I believe that at times... He could be hard to understand. Paul also delved into issues that the other apostles did not. Paul spoke a lot about faith and grace and how that fits in to works, how that we are justified, not by works, not by debt, not by what we do, but equally so, he understood the need to obey. So he was trying to convey these complicated thoughts where the other apostles were not. So some of it was Paul's message. But he was hard to understand. And we see, again, Peter confirming that here. I want to begin today with Colossians 2, verse 16. As we did last week, we're going to review some of Paul's more difficult, challenging passages, explain the intent, the meaning behind them. So the first one is Colossians 2, 16 through 17. It says there, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days. So notice, we're going to talk about this latter part here in a moment. But Paul goes on here, he says in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Messiah, meaning this last part here, only the body of Messiah is in a position to judge. Because they are doing, they are obeying, they are complying. So what's the common, common argument here? What's the debate? Or most will say that 
Paul's uh, communicating here, he's confirming that we're not to allow others to judge us on our freedom through a Messiah. In other words, Paul's saying here that there's no need for believers to obey the commandments, like the Sabbath and the feast days. We are free from those things. And as a believer in Messiah, we can find our rest through him. And there's no one in a position to judge us based on that freedom, that we can, again, do as we will. We can worship as we will, because, again, Yahshua paid that price, and we are free now to worship as we please. At least that's the view that many people hold. As an example, let me read. This is from a commentary here, Barnes Notes. Actually, a very good commentary for the most part. Obviously, I don't agree with it in all points, as I'll um, show here. So Barnes Note says of this verse, the word rendered holy day means properly a feast or festival. Now, they're right, it's right with that. It does refer to a holy day. And in allusion here to the festivals of the Jews. Of course, we know, by the way, are the Yahweh's days or Jewish days? Or they're Yahweh's days, right? They're not Jewish days. I'm going to get that out right now. They're, they're not Jewish days. It says, Asian says that no one had a right to impose their observance on Christians were to condemn them if they did not keep them. Again, we're free to worship as we will. Yahshua paid that cost. They had been delivered from that obligation by the death of Christ, he says. Now, it's true here that Paul is referring to the holy days. He's referring to holy days. He's referring to the Sabbath. We see that here, these Old Testament days of worship. The problem is... Most people completely miss Paul's message. Or number one, who is Paul speaking to? Who is he communicating with? Or he's speaking to the assembly. He's speaking to believers, to those in the Messiah. Number two, based on what we know about Paul, was he for or against the commandments? What do we find within the word? You know, Romans 7 verse 12, this is a really good passage for those who want to show that Paul was not opposed to these laws. Romans 7, verse 12, Paul says there that the commandments are holy, just, and good. certainly doesn't sound like a man who opposes the law, opposes the Torah. You know, what he's saying here is this. Don't let those outside of the assembly judge you in these things. That's the message he's trying to communicate. Don't let the world judge you and how you worship Almighty Yahweh. That is the message we find here. We're not to let those outside the assembly criticize us when we observe his Sabbath, when we observe his feast days. This is the message we find. You know, as believers, have you ever been criticized? Have you been judged based on your observance of the commandments? Have you ever been labeled a legalist? For simply keeping the Sabbath, where many of us have, maybe all of us at some point, well, that's fine. Because Paul says, don't worry about it. Paul says, don't give it a second thought. You see, Paul's message here is a complete opposite from what is believed by the majority today. Isn't that sad? The problem is most who read this do so with the premise that the laws, that the commandments are no longer necessary, that we're no longer We no longer have an obligation to obey these things. So obviously, they're going to come up with a solution based on their preconceived bias. You know, as we heard in my last message, 
It was never Paul's intent to abolish the commandments. Yeah, there are so many examples for this. And I'm not going to, you know, I would encourage you, by the way, if you didn't see part one, to go back and listen to part one. We, we look at some of those examples where Paul supports the commandments. Paul supports the commandments all throughout his epistles. It really is amazing. You see the evidence, and yet people completely disregard that. They overlook that. So again, I would encourage you to go back and watch the first one if you missed it. Now moving on here, what does uh, Paul mean here when he said, uh, which are a shadow of things to come? What message is he trying to convey with this phrase? Well, before I explain this, let me show you a major difference between the King James and the NIV. This is one of the reasons I'm always a little bit of anxiety over the NIV. So here's this passage. So the King James again says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Messiah. The um, NIV says, these are a shadow of things that were, were to come. The reality, however, is found in Messiah. So do you see the difference? You see the difference? The King James places this in future tense. It's not happened yet. While the NIV places this in past tense if these things are now obsolete. So this is one of the liberties the NIV has taken. And there's others like that, especially in the New Testament. You know, I like the NIV for the Old Testament. It does a very good job, I think, overall translating or paraphrasing the Old Testament, but the New Testament takes liberties, as we find here. Well, let's get back to what Paul says. What does he mean? What does he mean by this statement? We know that the feast days are not only days of worship. We know they're much more than this. We know that these days are also prophetic. Let me give you some examples. For, For example, the Passover foreshadows what? The Passover foreshadows Yahshua's death. Right? The feast of love and bread foreshadows his resurrection, because that's when he was resurrected. The feast of weeks, or Pentecost, represents the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. More than likely, trumpets foreshadows Yahshua's second coming. Tabernacles for, for, uh, foreshadows the kingdom. The last great day foreshadows the great white throne judgment. So you see, Yahweh's feast days are not only days of worship. They're not only times that we're commanded to congregate, to come together to worship him. They're literally his blueprint of salvation for mankind. Well, let's now get back to what Paul says about this passage. And again, understand what he's referring to. What he's referring to here, what he's communicating, what he's saying, is that the feast days of the Sabbath, these are prophetic. That's the message we find here. And we know that they're prophetic. Not only, not only did Yahshua and the apostles keep these days in the New Testament, and you know, that's amazing when you really look at the evidence. All you have to do is read the Bible. It really is incredible that so many people are deceived into believing that the Sabbath and feast days are no longer necessary because when you simply crack open the Bible, when you begin to read the New Testament, you will see what they were doing. And what they were doing, they were observing the Sabbath. They were observing the feast days. They were still eating kosher, based on what we'll see here near uh, throughout this message. You know, and we also see evidence that they're going to be observed in the kingdom. You know, we see this in Ezekiel 45 and Zechariah 14, passages showing that the feast days, that his days of worship will be observed even at this time. So, from everything we find here, it makes no sense to say that Paul would simply do away with these 
commandments, with these days of worship. Again, he's trying to strengthen believers. He's telling us to stand strong, not to allow those outside the body judge us on what we know to be right. And yet, again, the way most will interpret this is a complete opposite. They will say, Messiah did it all for us. There's nothing left to be done. And you are not to criticize me for my freedom in Messiah. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, don't let the world criticize you and how you worship him, worship Yahweh. Well, I want to move on now and look at another example, Romans 14, verse 5. This is a very popular one. Many, many people will point to this passage as evidence that we can worship on any day. Of course, they always seem to settle on Sunday for some odd reason, but they will say that you can worship on any day based on this. So Romans 14, verse 5 says, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man, he says, be fully persuaded in his own mind. So what is Paul speaking about here when he says one man esteems one day above another? Well, the majority, again, will say that he's referring to a day of worship. That what Paul is communicating here is that we can worship whatever day we so choose. That if we want to worship on Sunday, we can worship on Sunday. If we want to worship on Wednesday, we can worship on Wednesday. You see, it's not a requirement anymore. We can worship Yahweh whenever we so choose. Well, let me, again, share with you some examples. And, you know, these are fairly good commentaries, by the way. I'm not going to shed a... a negativeness on on these uh, commentaries, but they're not always right, and we see examples of this here. So the first one is from the Adams-Clark commentary in reference to this verse, Romans 14, verse 5. It says, reference is made here to Jewish institutions and especially their festivals, such as the Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, New Moons, Jubilee, etc. The converted Jews still thought these of moral obligation. The Gentile Christian, not having been bred up in this way had no prejudices. And as those who were the instruments of bringing him in to the knowledge of Elohim gave him so much injunctions, consequently he paid to these no religious regard. So in other words, what he's saying here, according to this commentary, is that this is is referring to the feast days. This is referring to days of worship. So Paul's saying it doesn't matter when you worship. Now we find something similar in Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, those who thought themselves still under some kind of obligation to their ceremonial law. You see, they, they do this often, by the way. They'll try to connect the ceremonial law and, and days of worship. There's not a connection there. The days of worship are distinct from the ceremonial law. goes on to say, esteemed one day above another, kept up in respect to the times of the Passover, Pentecost, New Moons, and Feast of Tabernacles, thought those days better than other days, and solemnized them accordingly with popular observances, binding themselves to some religious rest and exercise on those days. Those who knew that all these things were abolished and done away by Christ's coming esteemed every day alike. We must understand it with an exception to the Lord's Day, which all Christians unanimously observed, but they made no account, took no notice of those antiquated festivals of the Jews. Notice that last part, they're antiquated, they're old, they're obsolete, they're of no value. So we find from both um, Adam Clark and Matthew Henry the common notion here, and 
the common notion again. Paul is referring to days of worship. He's saying that it doesn't matter when you worship, how you worship, because again, the Messiah paid that price, and we are now free to do as we will. Now, before I explain what Paul is really saying here, I want to look at something Matthew Henry said just for, just for a moment. Near the end of his quote, he again says, we must understand it with an exception of the Lord's Day, which all Christians unanimously observed. Or number one, from the evidence in the New Testament, there was no observance of a Lord's Day. Absolutely no observance of an additional day of rest or worship or sacrifice or some sort of commemoration is simply missing. In fact, the only day that they observed, besides the feast days, and we see several examples of those, is a Sabbath. And this includes, by the way, the great Apostle Paul, the champion that supposedly changed all this. You know, if you don't believe me, read Acts 13, 14, 16, 13, 17, verse 2, and 18, verse 4. And all of those examples, we find Paul observing the Sabbath. Some of those places says it was his custom. It was his tradition. If you go to the Greek, it literally means this is how he worshipped. This is how he worshipped. It was an observance of the Sabbath. Number two, the Lord's Day doesn't even refer to a day of worship. And again, you just read, read the Bible. That's all you have to do. It's not hard. If you read the Bible, you look at the Lord's Day, or it's really it should be Yahweh's Day or the Day of Yahweh. It refers to Yahshua's second coming. For example, the phrase Day of the Lord, or as it should be again, Day of Yahweh, appears 24 times, 24 times in the Old and New Testament, mostly in the Old. It uses words like these, like destruction, anger, desolation, doom, and darkness to describe this day. Now, does that sound like a day of worship? Does that sound like a day we should be observing? A day of darkness, a day of destruction, a day of desolation. In fact, the prophet Amos in 5.18 says that we're not to even desire the day of Yahweh. Or again, we know that it's referring to Yahshua's second coming. No time in the history of mankind will we see a worse day than this one. Yahshua said that. He said that this time of trouble is going to be worse. No day before, no day after. It's going to be a day of dread. So this is not referring to a day of worship, as so many believe. This is referring to Yahshua's second coming. Well, let's now get back to what Paul says here. So what is, what is uh, he trying to convey? Or, you know, one of the lessons that we learn, we're going to learn here, is that sometimes we need to read beyond the one verse. You know, many people there are great at finding that one verse. And they'll read that one verse. And they will emphasize that one little point. And they will build this gigantic theological argument based on that one little tiny point. When if we would have just read beyond that point, we would have understood. So let's do that. Let's read beyond this one little point to understand fully what Paul meant. So skipping down here, in verse 6 it says, He that regards the day regards it unto Yahweh, and he that regards not the day to Yahweh, he does not regard it. Now listen to this. It says, He that eats, eats to Yahweh. For he gives Elohim thanks, and he that eats not to Yahweh, he eats not. 
and gives Elohim thanks. So based on what Paul says here, what do we learn? Does he mention the Sabbath? Does he mention Jewish feast days? Does he mention the Passover? Does he mention any type of worship at all? Where the answer is obviously no. Or what then does he mention? Where he's talking about eating and not eating. In other words, he's talking about fasting or going without food and drink. From a biblical standpoint, why would a person fast? Well, this was a show of devotion, a show of dedication to Yahweh. Many people still fast. Yahshua certainly spoke about fasting. I think it's great to fast, certainly if we're looking for answers and looking for Yahweh's intercession. So as a sign of devotion. You know, as a side note, we also see this practice of fasting in almost every religion. We see it in Judaism, Christianity, and even in Islam. In fact, in the New Testament, many Pharisees would fast twice a week. I believe that was uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays they would fast on. And I believe this is actually what Yash, or what Paul here is referring to. He's talking about these days of fasting. But again, these are not religious days or consecrated days that Yahweh put in place. No, these are simply days of fasting that we can choose or choose not. They are personal fast days. Now, the only exception is Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement. We know that's, an, that's a day we have to fast on. That's the only day we have to fast on. But all these other, day, all these other times, it's voluntary. It's, it's not required. So in other words, what Paul's saying here is that, is that if we choose to fast, we should choose a day based on our own persuasion, based on our own conviction. If we're convicted to fast on a certain day, great, fast. But if not, don't fast. But Paul says, whatever you do, you're doing to Yahweh. Paul says, if you are fasting, right, you're fasting to Yahweh. You're not eating. And you're giving Yahweh the thanks. If you're eating, you're still giving Yahweh the thanks. But again, this has nothing to do with the Sabbath. This has nothing to do with the feast days. This is focused on personal days of fasting, something that we should have a conviction with. Well, let's now look at another example, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. This is another real popular passage people use to try to support Sunday worship. It says there, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So many will make the case here that Paul's referring to passing that plate on Sunday morning. This is referring to those monetary offerings that we give that each Sunday morning. Where to begin with, the word day is not in the Greek. It's absent from the Greek. The Greek simply reads first of the week. Based on this, it could have been Sunday. could have been Sunday. could have been Monday. Maybe even Tuesday. We don't know. We just know it was the first day of the week. Also, the simply passing the plate. Why would there be a need to store up, as he says here? Because he, he writes before and he says, store it up. And when I come, I will gather it. Why? What's the purpose of storing it? How much effort, how much time does it really take to get out the plate and pass it from pew to pew? What would be the point? You know, Paul's not referring to Sunday or to an offering plate. 
He's speaking about something different, entirely different. What many don't realize is when this epistle was written, there was a famine, and there was a famine in the land of Judea. We actually we can read about this in Acts, Acts eleven twenty-seven through thirty. It says there, and in those in these days came prophets from Jerusalem, but to Antioch. So we see, by the way, we see prophets in the New Testament. It's not something talked about too often, but they did exist. It says, there stood up one of them named Agabus. So this was a prophet in the New Testament, and he prophesied of this famine. He said, and signified it by the Spirit that there should be great dearth or famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did. And listen to this. It says, and sent it to the elders by the hands of who? It says, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. So we see here that there was a famine in the land of Judea. And we find that Paul and Barnabas was sent out to collect the foodstuffs, the items of relief for those who were suffering from this famine. You know, based on the timing, this is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 16. He's gathering foodstuffs, items, supplies for those who are suffering. He's not talking about passing the plate, but storing relief items for when he comes, he can quickly gather those items and return back to those in need. And again, this is why he asks them to have it in store prior to his coming. You see, Paul was a good project manager, right? He wanted to make sure that those items were ready and that when he came, that he could simply pick those items up, get those items logistically back to the land of Judea and help those suffering from this horrible famine. So again, this has nothing to do with Sunday. This has nothing to do with passing the plate. It just doesn't even make sense when you think about these things rationally. Again, why, why store these things up? What's the purpose of storing them up? If it's as simple as removing a plate from underneath the pulpit and passing it around, what, what kind of organization does that require? No, this was much more than passing the plate. Paul was bringing relief to those who were suffering from this dearth, from this famine. Well, I want to move on to another example of Galatians chapter 4, verse 10. Again, a very popular verse many people use. And same thing here that they will say that we're not to observe the Jewish feast days or the biblical feast days. And again, we know they're not Jewish. They're biblical. Yahweh says in Leviticus 23, verse 2, he says, these are my feasts. He doesn't say these are Jewish feasts. And there were many others keeping them, by the way, at that point, other than just the Jews. It's just simply the Jews were the last ones keeping them. They were the last man standing, if you will. It says in Galatians 4, 10 through 11, you observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now, most, again, assume here that Paul's referring to feast days, that he's referring to, as they would say, these Jewish days of worship, like the Passover and unleavened bread. And based on this, we'll say here that Paul is reprimanding this assembly, chastising this assembly for returning back to these, to these old, archaic days 
of worship. Is this the message he's trying to convey? Well, of course not. We know that. Paul's not trying to say here that the feast days are no longer necessary or we're doing something wrong if we observe these times. You know, in the last example, I mentioned how important it was to consider the context. You know, we need to look at all the context. Sometimes we need to read before and after. Or in this case, we need to look at what we find before. So Galatians 4 and 8 through 11, but I want to really focus on 8 through 9. It says, How be it then, when you knew not Yahweh, you did service unto them which by nature are, are no mighty ones. But now, but now, after that you have known Elohim, or rather are known of Elohim. You see, by the way, I, I really like that verse because it shows who does the calling. You see, we don't know Yahweh. Yahweh knows us. Yahweh calls us. And that's the distinction I believe Paul is trying to make there when he says that you have known Elohim or rather are known of Elohim. You see, we know Yahweh because Yahweh has revealed himself to us. And only because of that reason. So Paul goes on to say, How turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Number one, notice here that Paul speaks of a time when they knew not Yahweh and when they were serving these false idols. And number two, notice here that he reprimands them for going back to this worship, which he calls bondage. Now, the fact that this is referring to a time before they knew Yahweh shows that this is not referring to biblical days of worship. It can't possibly be referring to biblical days of worship. It's referring to days that they were observing prior to coming to Yahweh. That is what Paul is referring to. So what days would this be? What pagan worship is Paul referring to? Or who were the Galatians? Who were the people of Galatia before coming to the Messiah? As we note in the Restoration Study Bible, these people were Gauls who migrated from northern Europe. Now, we know historically the Gauls followed the Celtic or the Druidic faith. You know, much of, um, just as a side note, much of the paganism in today's church was borrowed from this faith, the uh, Celtic faith. For example, Halloween comes from Samhain, an ancient Druidic day of worship that involved animal sacrifice, some even say human sacrifice. You see, Paul is not referring here to Jewish, quote, or biblical, better, feast days. No, he's referring to pagan days of worship that they were observing prior to coming to the Messiah. That is what he's referring to. He's referred to days that they were observing long before coming to the truth. And the days they were observing were these ancient, pagan, horrible, Druidic, Celtic days of worship. You know, it's amazing how many people misunderstand Paul's message here. The message he's trying to convey, they completely miss. And not only do they miss the message, they twist the message into something Paul would have never said. Paul would have never said, I am afraid of you for keeping Yahweh's days of worship. I am afraid of you for keeping the Sabbath. And by the way, that's my tradition too. Paul would have never said that. Paul would have never said that. You know, for nearly 2,000 years, Paul's writings have been radically used to change worship. 
to change what we find within the Bible. And that's why it's so important that we understand this man and that we understand these passages and can explain what he meant as we find throughout the word. Well, let's look at another example from this man, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Now, we're deviating from days of worship. We're going to look at another popular uh, falsehood, and that is going to heaven. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather, willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with Yahweh. Now, many people will use this belief or this passage to support their belief on going to heaven. So again, what is Paul trying to convey here? You know, what if I told you that nowhere in the Bible does it promise heaven as a reward after death? What if I told you that the Bible says that when we die that we lose our consciousness, our weirdness, and that we wait in the grave for the resurrection? You know, it's amazing. You know, you think about it. Why, why do people even say rest in peace if we're already in heaven? It doesn't make a lot of sense. You see, it's somewhere along the line they knew. They understood, but they've deviated from that truth. And again, they will use this passage here from Paul. Now, I know for many people this is a hard pill to swallow, but listen, as believers, we're commanded to prove all things, to really look into what we believe. You know, some may still be asking, how is it possible that so many people believe this and yet it be wrong? Well, the sad reality is much of today's traditional worship is wrong. The majority of it is wrong. And as believers, we need to look at it. We need to verify. This is uh, why it's so important that, we, that, that we're like the noble Bereans. I don't know. Most, I'm sure most of you know the noble Bereans. I'm not going to turn there. But Paul was witnessing to them. And they could have, I guess, took Paul's word for it. They could have said, you know what? Paul said this. There's no reason to validate what Paul's saying. We're going to simply believe it because Paul said it. Well, that's not what we find in Scripture. What we find in the Bible is that they studied, they, they searched the Scriptures out daily, proving what Paul was saying. You see, they validated, they proved, they verified that what Paul was saying corresponded with what they found within Scripture. And, of course, it did correspond. And as believers, we have this same obligation. We have the same calling. You know, one of the biggest issues with this belief of going to heaven is it contradicts what Joshua said. John chapter 3, verse 13, Joshua says something, and again, it's just amazing. It's remarkable that people can read this verse and it gloss over. Joshua says, There no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. So Joshua says here that no man has gone to heaven. Now, how many ways can you interpret that phrase? How many ways can you interpret that phrase? Joshua says, no man has gone to heaven. How many ways? I can only think of one, and that is no man has gone to heaven. Except, he said, he who came down from heaven. And we know that was Joshua himself. You know, the last part here is important too, is it shows that Joshua did exist prior to that. Now, how is it possible that we, again, go to heaven if no man has ascended to heaven? Obviously, it can. This contradicts Scripture. Yahshua, though, wasn't the only one to make this observation. In Acts 2, verse 34, David said that, or uh, Peter said that David's uh, never ascended to heaven either. 
And as we see in Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, I mean, these are the cream of the crop, the best of the best. These are those who are praised above all others. And if you read that passage, it will, you will find that none of those listed receive the promise either. Not yet. Because they're in the grave waiting for that resurrection. So how should we understand Paul's message? Well, for me, the key phrase is willing rather. Willing rather. You see, what Paul's saying here is that, that he would prefer He would prefer to be absent from the body and to be present with Yahweh. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that he's absent and he's in heaven. He's just simply saying that he has a preference. Now, if we had a choice, I think we all would choose the same thing, right? If we could snap our fingers and we could make the choice of either being here or being with our Father in heaven, which one would we choose? Well, I think we would all choose the same thing. So Paul's not saying here that we get to heaven. Paul's simply saying here that he would prefer to be with Yahweh, but he's not. The Bible again shows that when we die, that our spirit of Ruach returns to Yahweh, Ecclesiastes 12.7, our thoughts perish, Psalms 146.4, and our bodies wait in the grave until the resurrection at Yahshua's second coming, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and 1 Corinthians 15. I want to close with one more passage, often confused by many. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. It says, Therefore, every creature of Elohim is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. This passage is often used to support this concept that Yahweh has now cleansed all meats, that we can eat whatever we want, that there is no obligation, there is no, there is no commandment, there is no restrictions. We can eat what we want. Now, before I explain this, here's a, here's a few things we should keep in mind. Uh, number one, and this is really phenomenal when you look into it, even medical science is finding that pork and other unclean meats are damaging to our health. I mean, it's a fact. Matter of fact, many people with certain health conditions, they will say, look, stay away from the pork. Why do you suppose that is? Who knew best? Or Yahweh knew best. He knew best back then, and he knew, he knew he knows, best, knows best today. You see, our Father in Heaven created certain animals not to be consumed, and there was a reason for this. You know, everything Yahweh does is for a reason. Sometimes we don't quite understand that reason. But there's a reason behind everything he does. And there's a reason why he says not to eat a certain meat, to abstain from certain meat. And by the way, for the, these people who um, believe that the Bible is, is fictional, that it's not inspired, how did a bunch of nomads, you know, 3,500 years, 4,000 years ago, know enough to record that these animals or a detriment to our health, we understand it now. We know from a medical standpoint that these are damaging to our health, but back then there's no way they understood it. It shows that this was divinely inspired. The word that we have in front of us, it was inspired from an omnipotent creator. You know, these animals 
normally fit into the category of scavengers. A scavenger is an animal that cleans up the earth by eating the garbage nothing else will. You know, for those who may not know, a pig will literally eat anything you set before it, anything. And because of the way it's designed biologically, you see, a cow has three stomachs. Now, I'm not, I can't go real deep with this, but I know some basics. A cow has three stomachs. And those three stomachs allows the, those things that we should not eat to pass through and to purge. Where the pig isn't designed that way, it's one stomach. And the, the garbage, the, the parasites, and everything within that stomach can find its way into the flesh of the pig. And then we as human beings, we will eat that flesh, and we then can contract trichinosis or whatever it is through this, through the flesh of the pig. You see, you can't do that with the animals that Yahweh says, you can eat these. How is that possible that a bunch of nomads understood that? That they understood from a biological standpoint that these animals were good and these animals were a detriment. Because everything we find in the Bible, everything we find in the Bible, we can now prove scientifically. I just find that incredible. I really do. Number two, in Acts 10, we find that Peter was still obeying the clean food laws 10 years after Yahshua's ascension. I don't know how many people have thought about that. So Acts 10 occurs 10 years after, according to scholarship, 10 years after Yahshua had ascended. When he was told in the vision, which, by the way, had nothing to do with food, we learn later, later that the message was not to call any man common or unclean. And, and, you know, again, just read it. Just continue reading. It's not complicated. But in that vision, Peter hears a voice that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He hears it three times, and every single time he says, Not so, Master, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And this was ten years after Yahshua's ascension. You know, is it possible that Peter did not receive the same memo that Paul received ten years before that? That somehow, such a major issue, Peter missed. Or it doesn't make sense. And there's a reason it doesn't make sense. It's not correct. It's not right. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So what is Paul speaking about here? Again, we're going to read one more verse. We'll see what he's not referring to. So 1 Timothy 4 and 5, this time says, For it is sanctified by what? By your faith? No, it says it is sanctified by the word of Elohim and prayer. Now, they're going to focus on prayer there. So they're going to say, as long as I pray over that ham sandwich, I'm okay. I can eat whatever I want as long as I can pray over that meal. No, Yahweh also says here, through Paul, he says it is sanctified by the word. It is sanctified by the word. So what does Yahweh's word sanctify for human consumption? Does he ever sanctify the pig, the swine, these other unclean animals? You know, to find out, we only need to go back and read Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. It says there what he sanctifies by the word. And again, we know the swine is an abomination. Matter of fact, I think it's Isaiah 66. It talks about how those who eat swine's flesh are an abomination to Yahweh. That's a prophetic passage. So it's not dead and gone. It, it, it's not dead and gone. You know, we find here that Yahweh allow what Yahweh allows and doesn't allow. And as we see in verse 5, 
If we only take Paul's words in context, we'll understand the message. What he's saying is that Yahweh is not forbidding, that Yahweh has given us these animals to eat. As long as they are sanctified, as long as they are okay by his word, and we give thanks. You know, I can't say enough how important it is to be careful with Paul's letters, not to jump to one verse, focus in without looking at the overall context, without considering maybe the Greek, without considering the original, the, the historical lessons or the historical setting. So here's a few things to keep in mind when interpreting Paul. Number one, read the passage in context. And this is true not just of Paul, but really of anything. It's so important that when, we, when we're looking, when we're trying to understand something, that we read it within context. Number two, examine the original language for additional clues. Maybe we need to go back to the Hebrew, to the Greek, in the case of Paul, to understand what he's saying. And a good example of that is Romans 10.4, again, where he says that Messiah is the end of the law. Or if you understand end is from telos, and you understand that telos can mean goal, it makes a lot of sense. Because a goal points us to Messiah, and Messiah points us back to the Torah, right? Number three, consider the history, including the culture and what was occurring at the time. When Paul was preaching, when Paul was witnessing the word, it was a very, very different world. The major religion was Judaism. And believe me, they weren't saying that the law wasn't necessary. What they were saying was that you need to go back to the sacrificial system. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Paul's saying, you are justified through the Messiah. See, but today we don't hear that message, and people don't understand the historical setting. The historical setting is not the, histor- is, is not the current setting. Because our current setting says that the law is not necessary. Paul was dealing with a group of people who was saying that you are justified, that you are found, that you, that you are redeemed by the sacrifices. So we need to understand the history, the culture of the time. You know, if we follow these guidelines, I, I think we're going to be equipped to understand not only Paul, but, but the Bible at large. You know, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you, that maybe we understand Paul a bit better, that we understand his writings. And I would, again, encourage you, and we do these studies every so often, uh, defending the faith workshops, so that we can answer the argument. So I would encourage everybody to really, you know, if you weren't taking notes, maybe go back and listen to them. Take notes. Because I really would love to see everybody in this congregation, if somebody comes to you and they say, or what about this? That as a believer, we can say, no, that's not what this means. Let me explain what that means. And we can show them, no, that's not what it says in the Greek. Or no, read on. Read in the next verse and explain it. So I pray and hope that it's helped you in that way. And wish you many blessings. May Yahweh bless.